Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. You have to help that retailer move products off the shelf. And so one of the big tactics that we use and, and where we spend most of our marketing budget is on specific demographic info of who is in that community, where is a Walmart store or a Target store, and based on demographic info, this person is more likely or less likely to go to a Target or a Walmart, and we're going to show them ads that drive them in-store. Hey, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn what makes a product scalable, how to successfully launch your product at a trade show, and how to spend your first 30 days when developing a new product. Today, I'm joined by Dallas Robinson from Kistix.com. That's K-I-S-S-T-I-X-X.com. Kistix sells a lip-locking balm that adds chemistry to every kiss and was started in 2010 and based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome, Dallas. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So I actually heard about the, the business through Shark Tank myself. Uh, I'm not sure when it aired, but I remember seeing it on, on the TV. But tell us the audience a little bit more about your store and the product that you, that you uh, started. Absolutely. So I had a crazy idea in high school, actually. Uh, I, I did a lot of outdoor sports. And so I was all the time outside wakeboarding, uh, snowboarding, doing motocross, and my lips would get all dry and chapped. And uh, then I'd have like prom the next weekend. So I tried every type of lip balm possible that was out there. I hated it all. Either it would taste disgusting and it, you know, worked really well or it didn't work and it tasted great or it tasted great. And it was like made for little teenage girls, you know. So I thought, how cool would it be to have a lip balm that comes in two compatible flavors that I could use when I'm out riding motocross or on, or on the lake wakeboarding and then at prom, I could give another one to my date and the two would come together and create a reaction on contact. You know, something would happen, some, some cool experience when the two lip balms came together. And so that, that's how it started. It was just a total idea in high school. I kept thinking about it through my first couple of years of college. And then finally, as a junior in college, I had a, a business presentations class and I, I used the concept of Kistics. Um, and presented to the class, and everybody loved it and went went crazy. And the the professor actually held me after class and and said it was one of the most scalable ideas he'd ever seen, and he would actually invest in it if I was gonna if I was gonna move forward with it. And so that kind of gave me the confidence to just jump into it and and create a company. That, that's awesome that that uh, you had so much support early on. Did you ever have experience launching other products in the past, like during college or anything? Or was this your very first entrepreneurial? <laughs> yeah, not at all. Um, I I had zero experience. I had no idea how to launch a product or take a product to market. Uh, I had no idea how to create lip balm. I, I had no no background in chemistry or uh, anything like that. So it was really starting completely from scratch. Awesome. So you said the professor mentioned that it was a very scalable idea. Can you speak more about this? Like what makes the particular product a very scalable product? Yeah. I mean, he, he said he had seen, you know, hundreds of these presentations before, uh, a lot of business concepts, a lot of different, uh, business ideas. And he thought, and he, from his perspective, he could see the virality of this product and the, uh, the ability to go into, 
a bunch of a bunch of stores across multiple demographics and be something the marketing side really be something that people could get excited about and it would be shareable. And that's kind of what he, what he saw in it and, and initially was like, okay, this, this is pretty cool. So did he end up investing in the business? I did not end up taking anything from him. Um, I, it was too early on. We, it was just so concept stage at this point. I mean, it was very, mm-hmm. very just slapped together for this, for this presentation. But, uh, so I didn't end up taking any money from him, but it, but it gave me that extra confidence and that push over the edge, you know, into the unknown. And that's, I think the biggest, that that's a, was a critical moment for me of, you know, leaving behind a, a fantastic job. And, uh, I was in the family business and my dad owns a very, very successful business. And, um, I jumped off the cliff into the unknown, you know, the, the entrepreneurship. And that kind of gave me that extra shove that I needed. Makes sense. So what was the first step then? You had all this great feedback early on. Did you jump on it right away or did you sit on it and kind of plan things out? You know, immediately after that, I started trying to figure out the chemistry because that was one of the most critical Mm -hmm. parts of of the product. Um, And as a broke college kid, I had, you know, no money going into this at all. Uh, so I, I, uh, had to be creative and that's one of the biggest things I learned early on is how to get things done creatively without having to spend the money. And so I, uh, literally what I did is I, I went to Google and typed into Google how to make lip balm. And I started learning about all the different, uh, different ingredients that could go into it. I started learning about all the different ones that I did want and I didn't want and how to make it taste the way I wanted, but still have that, uh, you know, SPF sunscreen protection that I wanted. And so pretty soon I had a good idea of what I did and didn't want. And I started finding chemists and found actually a local chemist. Turns out in Salt Lake City, there's a whole bunch of, uh, there's actually some of the, the biggest lip balm producers in the country here in Salt Lake, which I had no idea. So I was able to get appointments with them and able to convince them to uh, go ahead and create the formulations for me um, for free and then uh, was able to start ordering product from them. I, I took a loan from my parents. for They gave me $5,000 to kick this business off. And uh, I went to the school and had the graphic design department create me packaging and a logo and a website for one of, for some of their senior projects. Um, and so, I mean, it was just the scrappiest startup you can imagine. I mean, we, we just had zero budget and did everything on the cheap and, uh, and ended up launching the company. It took, it took a long time doing it that way, uh, you know, with, with no budget, but, but it it ended up good. We finally got packaging. We used that first $5,000 to buy initial inventory. And we started just selling that everywhere we could in the hallways of the school to little salons and boutiques around town. And then when we, we threw up our first website. Very cool. So you, like you said, you got creative when you didn't have the budget to, to pay people not necessarily, I guess, market rates or pay people at all to do these things for you. And I think that that's a, a, a very smart approach early on, especially like you were saying, you don't have the budget Were you ever, you know, I think, I think a lot of entrepreneurs when they are in this kind of situation, they are hesitant to do that because maybe they're ashamed to, to ask or pull in favors. Did you ever have that kind of feeling like, you know, maybe it's not right to, I'm not saying it's not right, but people might think that it's not right to be bugging people to get them cheap or free stuff. No, I didn't really care because this is the way I looked at it. You know, first of all, there's a lot of mentors out there and a lot of people that will take young entrepreneurs under their wing and help you along. And we did that. We, we reached out to a lot of people for some guidance and for, and for help. And then on the other side, we looked at, we looked at, it was beneficial for these people who are creating our logos and our packaging 
we couldn't cre- we couldn't afford a huge ad agency or people who had tons of experience in logo design, but mm-hmm. these kids needed to do a senior project, you know, and something they had to do anyways. And we were giving them an idea to be able to create something really cool. And they, and they were doing it anyway. So to us, that was a win-win. Um, and then being able to ask, ask favors and, and do that sort of stuff. We, we asked that of everyone. And, and, you know, the way we looked at it is, they were rocking it. They were successful. They were doing a great job. And we had this cool little idea and there's no other way to get it off the ground. And people were so amazing and so awesome to be able to kind of give back to us as these young, young little hustler entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was amazing how the entrepreneurial community really like gathers around and, and roots for you and, and cheers you as, as you're going up. But it is, it was amazing. Incredible experience. Yeah, definitely don't undervalue the the scrappy story, I guess, angle that that you that you that you definitely uh, took advantage of because a lot of people, like you're saying, have been in those those shoes before, especially successful entrepreneurs, and they do want to help, and they're just kind of sometimes a lot of times waiting for people to seek them out because they sometimes don't need you know the monetary benefits of helping you, exactly. but they want that feeling of giving back to the community that helped them get started. Exactly. So you, you mentioned that you first you started looking around for for a chemist. Now, are these chemists that are, are they focused on creating commercial products? Like, how do you even begin? I don't even know where you be, to even begin looking for a chemist for to create a product. How did you go down this process? Yeah, honestly, I just I just started hitting Google, and uh, I ended up I ended up looking, you know, chemist lip balm chemists, and then it took me on this down this rabbit hole of finding, you know, there's this. There's this factory in uh, in Oregon that does it, and and typically what I found out is is a chemist, a factory will have an in-house chemist, and they typically have a range of uh, specialties, and uh, they do everything from cosmetics to lip balm to consumer products. I mean, all types of lotions and potions we call it. Um, and once I found that, then I started contacting the factories and started talking to their in-house chemists. And uh, that's really when I was able to kind of get to the next level and find out what I needed. I started getting quotes back from people. I started having these conversations and learning. And you know, some of my quotes were as high as $50,000 to create my formula. <laughs> you know, and that obviously wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, after talking to enough people and finding somebody who was in my own backyard here in Salt Lake City, I was able to, to find someone who believed in the product and the project enough to be able to do that formulation for me for free and then, of course, purchase the lip balm from them. Very nice. So when you are working with a chemist, you know, based on your experience working with chemists, what kind of industries do you the, the requires a chemist? It sounds like obviously yours, but like, or do people work with chemists in the food industry? Like, What other industries require chemists? So now I'm in multiple industries. Um, definitely the food side. Uh, you have to have a food food chemist for all types of different projects and make sure you're you're abiding by certain guidelines, especially in the food side. But then on the cosmetic side, where where it all started, is you have to have somebody who really knows what they're doing to combine um, ingredients. And especially because SPF, if you put sunscreen in anything, it actually becomes an over-the-counter drug, which is, um, mm. which is watched by the FDA and it's regulated by the FDA. So there's all types of things you have to be aware of and be cautious of when you put sunscreen in your product. So 
you know, all that kind of learning curve, you start to really, as you have more and more of these conversations, you find out what, what they can and can't do, what types of lotions, you know, can they specialize in and cosmetics. And then, and then you take it even a step further. If you go into like color cosmetics and makeup, which we've dabbled in a little bit, um, it's a whole different set of rules. So everybody has their expertise is what I've found. And you really have to understand what that factory and what that chemist can do and where, their specialty lies and use them for that and use another factory for, for a different project. Don't try to put everything under one roof. Yeah. And because these, these, uh, chemists that you're working with, the people in the industry, they're so specialized. Were you ever concerned that, that you just couldn't keep up like with what they're talking about? Like, how did you make sure that you were educated enough to make the right product design and like business decisions? Yeah. So I just, uh, that's one thing that I love is, is absorbing that information. Uh, and I think one of the, as an entrepreneur, one of the biggest things that I've, I've learned is, is that I need to be teachable. And that is the, that's one of the biggest, biggest things I always tell when I'm, you know, speaking to young entrepreneurs or, or talking to people is, is being teachable and absorbing other people's info and being around people who, know so much more than you do. It's, it's amazing. And, and it's wonderful. The types of things that you can just absorb that way. Mm. What mistakes, what mistakes do you think entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs make that prevents them from being, from being teachable? I think they feel like they have to know it all from the beginning. Uh, you know, they, they feel like, Oh, now I'm an entrepreneur. Now I have to know everything right away. And that's not the case. I mean, you really have to lean on people with the expertise in a, in a new market. Like you've got the idea, you've got the vision. That's fantastic. Run with it. But you got to pick up people along the way and uh, get guidance from people who have been there before and who know this product in this industry backwards and forwards, or it's going to be very, very difficult to succeed. Yeah. I've heard this uh, phrase called the beginner's mind, which is that you always want to approach any problem, even if you are in this industry for a long time with the beginner's kind of perspective, otherwise you will. And I think once you start getting a little more arrogant, I guess, about knowing too much or expecting to that you, you don't want to make it seem like you don't know an answer to something. That's when the kind of young guns that are coming behind you that are, that have this kind of teachable uh, attribute to them will essentially take over because they are willing to absorb as much information as possible and you kind of just, you know, uh, you kind of just hang around at where you were at before. Yeah, you'll get left behind. Absolutely. For sure. So when you are working with a chemist, what's that process like? What, what kind of input do you give and what do they provide back to you at the end of the day? So typically the way it works is you, you go in there and have an initial meeting and you kind of lay out exactly what the project will look like. So for example, on, on lip balm, um, we go in there and we say, okay, here's the types of, we want it to feel like this. And we, we take in certain brands. So that's, that's one way I've found really uh, effective way to do this is I take in certain brands and I say, oh, I would love for it to feel like this one. Uh, the touch and the feel should be like this. The flavor should be like this. And the consistency should be like this. And essentially I'm going to combine five or six items to create exactly what I want. Now, I don't know the types of ingredients it will take to get there, but that's the chemist's job. They can pull the ingredients and say, 
okay, to make the consistency right, I need this percentage of this ingredient. I need the taste right. I need this percentage of this ingredient and this type of flavor. And then their job is to combine, combine that all and get you samples back. Usually it takes a couple of weeks, depending on how fast the, the chemist house is, um, to crank out a first initial sample. And we went through six months of samples till we had it right. So it can be a discouraging process going through and saying, man, this just isn't quite right. And having to learn how to communicate that back to the chemist to get what you want. Um, that, that those lines of communication really have to be open because you've got something in your head and you have to be able to describe that and they have to be able to create that. So that can be a a difficult process, but, and a lengthy process as well. But finally, I mean, we got something awesome and then we've done it over and over and over again. Yeah. This, this six months process, I think a lot of people would be discouraged and might even just drop out because they might think that I'll never get to the right formulation. Now for you, how did you know that you arrived at that right formulation that, that made you say, okay, this is good to, to ship? Yeah. So this is just something that I, I think I had in my mind exactly how I wanted it. I wanted a smooth consistency. I wanted at least an SPF 15 level. Um, I wanted the taste just to be like unreal. And so that's one thing that I, I ramped up the flavor content probably six or seven times. I kept coming back and I was like, nope, more flavor, more flavor, more flavor. Um, so I wanted, I wanted something that I would be comfortable using on an everyday basis that would be good and protect my lips, but then also have this punch of flavor and this combination effect. And it really had to do that. Like the flavors really had to mix on contact or the whole point of uh, the whole marketing spin of our product would not work. And so finally, when we got it back and it was the flavors were, were right, the consistency was right, the, the SPF content was right, you couldn't taste any of the SPF, like it was right on and dialed. We're like, okay, game on, let's do this. Let's make our first shipment. Nice. So once that formula was done, what was next? How did you prepare the the, the products for for that first shipment? So they uh, they created that we used that first five thousand bucks. Uh, we used some of it on packaging and some of it on the lip balm. Put everything together, and we actually packed everything ourselves. That first initial one, we got packaging from one supplier. We did little uh, little boxes that they went in, and we packaged every single one of them in my apartment. And uh, we once we had them all together, then it was time to just get them out there and start selling them. So we we booked every single inexpensive trade show we could possibly think of. We started selling to little boutiques, little salons, stuff that's you know easy to get in there and talk to a buyer. And uh, and then we threw up the website and we started we started initially trying to market on the website, but we had no idea what we were doing on that side. So we, we were, we were better at the face to face sales, I think, than we were ever were on the online side. Mm, okay. So did you have to validate the product with anyone be- while going through this process of creating that formula uh, or even before you ordered that first, uh, first shipment, or did you just know the inside that, that this was the right product? You know, I, I always had wanted to try it and, the, and, and something inside of me was just, I kept having this little nagging feeling of if you don't do it, you're going to kick yourself later. You know, you're, it's going to be two, three, four years down the road mm-hmm. and you're just really going to kick yourself. So as I looked at it, I knew I was pretty good at sales. That's what I had done um, in college. That's what I did for my dad's company. And uh, I thought it's a fairly low risk for me to buy $5,000 worth of product. And even if I have to go out there and sell every one of these units myself, I probably can sell these. 
the the first five thousand dollars was was really our test. That was our test market. We didn't do any focus groups or market studies or anything like that. But we I felt like that was a low enough risk because um, I was fairly good at sales. I could go out there and and hustle hustle through that first five grand. Mm. So you, you mentioned uh, I think three different avenues that you you took uh, right off the bat. You you looked for trade shows to go to. You sold to boutiques, and I think you were also maybe just selling. Uh, you said in the hallways and everything. You're selling to people directly. Yeah. Uh, now, did you attack all three channels at the same time, or was there one of the three that you wanted to focus on first? I did. I, I wanted to get it everywhere <laughs> as fast <laughs> as I possibly could. So I went after just anything and everything I could where I could sell some of these things. Hmm. Okay, so let's start with the, the trade shows then. What was that like? How did you identify which trade shows to be at? So I just looked anything up in my local community of where people could set up booths and sell stuff. I mean, that's how it started. Um, it led me to different little local trade shows like that are called like what women want, for example. So it's like a, it's like a shopping trade show where you have a ton of booths and a ton of women and their daughters and their friends and girls night and whatever show up to these trade shows and just buy a whole bunch of stuff. And I was like, brilliant. That's perfect. We know, we know at least 50% of our demographic is women. And so we're going after this. So we should, we'd show up to these things, you know, it'd cost us 400 bucks for a booth and we'd show up and we'd just sell these things $5 at a time. Mm -hmm. So you, were you taking this kind of targeted approach from the beginning or did you learn over time how to identify which trade shows had the demographic that you're going after? Well, we knew we we knew fairly quickly after being in the hallways, you know, selling these in the hallways of our school and and that type of thing that that women actually gravitated more quickly to our product than men did. Um, so it was kind of we saw that very early on just from selling it face to face. Like that's what we learned really quickly. And after that, once we got girls in big groups and they saw our product and, and, and saw kind of the concept behind it and laughed and thought it was hilarious, they all would buy like several sets. So we're like, okay, brilliant. We got to get in front of a lot of women. Mm. And for anyone out there that's thinking about taking this route of going to trade shows uh, to kick off their, their sales, any tips that you can offer on how to successfully uh, launch at a trade show? Yeah. I mean, don't go too big, too fast. When I say trade show, I'm being very, I'm using the term very loosely because these were like local Mm -hmm. almost, uh, almost like just vendors setting up booths and, and they market it fairly well, but it's, it's like a weekend sort of thing, right? It's not like a traditional massive trade show because you can spend so much money on a trade show. Uh, we've done it both ways. We've, ex we've been to the massive retail trade shows. We've been to these little ones and it's a nice way to kick off these little ones because they're inexpensive. You can go set up and you can get real customer feedback immediately. And that was the most, I think that was the most valuable thing is for us to hear people talking about our product, you know, trying it right in front of us and showing and being like, oh yeah, I really like this flavor. Or, oh, I, I don't care for this flavor as much. And, and getting that information and data back was priceless for us. And then when we went, we went to big retail afterwards and we, and we started marketing more online, we knew a lot more about our customer. And so we were there on the front lines, you know, um, grinding at these trade shows, but really learning a lot. And during these in-person uh, in um, sales at these trade shows or, or just selling in person, were people pretty honest with their feedback or did you have to kind of try to dig it out of them, dig out the negative? It depends. Yeah, it depends on the person, but most people are pretty honest. I've found people are pretty, pretty honest. If they like or don't like something, mm. you can tell immediately. And then we would kind of push the, uh, we would push it a little bit and just say, Oh, it looks like you kind of don't like that. What's what, what don't you like about that? Um, 
And most of that was flavor. You know, flavor is something that's, you know, in, in unique to every single individual of whether they like something or whether they don't. So, but we found, you know, a lot of people like certain flavors. And then there's a section of people who really just hate coconut, for example. Um, but the majority of people like it. So it's a pretty safe flavor to roll out there nationwide. I like how you pursued learning more about why someone didn't like something. I think a lot of times our, our natural uh, reaction to someone not liking something is to say, oh, don't let me let me let, let me let you try this one instead and yes. try to direct them to a different product rather than trying to learn about why they didn't like that specific one. I think there's a great lesson to be learned there. Um, and did you did people get it get the product right away when they saw it, or did it require some education and explanation, especially early on when you maybe didn't have all the learnings yet? Yeah, it, it required a ton of explanation. <laughs> it required mm. people had no clue what our booth was. Um, they'd walk by and be like, "Lip balm, really? Like we, you have a whole booth for just lip balm?" Um, and so we had to be out there like pulling people into the booth, explaining it. Um, and then we had to develop a way for them to try it. So if it's a huge group of girls out there with their girlfriends, they're like, oh, cool, it's a novel concept, but how am I actually going to try this product? Um, so we had we actually developed a way with wax paper that we could put one flavor on one side, one flavor on another side, and they could put the wax paper between their lips, get some on both of their lips, and then actually experience the product in a way that they that they would when they were using it so we developed that way and then we were pulling people in and having them sample it and and everybody was was having a great time and we got a big uh, group around our booth and then once you get a group everybody wants to see what's going on over there and so we got more and more people and we found that that was really the best way to to get them to experience it and almost every time once they experienced it you know our buy rate was just so much higher Awesome. Now you mentioned uh, boutiques as well as the the second kind of channel that you went after right away. What was the approach here? How did you find the boutiques and how did you approach them? You know, I just looked for anything that was like small and like, uh, you know, two or three or four stores or salons, you know, I'd go talk to salon owners and they, they typically have a boutique within their salon that they push product. And I said, you know, at first, just just let me put some product here and put it on consignment and let me throw it up and see how well it sells. Let me test the price points. Let me see how this goes in a retail type setting, you know, because there's so much that goes into retail from your packaging to your display to your, uh, you know, price point. Is it going to move off the shelf? Can it tell the story when we're not there sitting and, and making people try this product, you know? And so uh, we just went around everywhere in Salt Lake City and uh, Utah County here and and just started talking to every little boutique that we possibly could and just placing product because the the issue was is you know with lip balm you got to sell a lot to make any money i mean you have to sell hundreds of thousands of units of this stuff to make any money at all because it's just such a low price point um decent margin but low price point Mm, so I like that you offer them this consignment option because it's low risk to them. And but did you did you approach them with this offer right off the bat, or did you first try to sell them, uh, I guess wholesale first, and then if they didn't like that, then you went to con- the consignment option. Well, at the very first, when we were like we had zero distribution, we put a few out there because it wasn't very much risk to us, but because we, we really needed to see if it would sell, and we didn't mm-hmm. want to we didn't want them to buy it for an incorrect wholesale price point, and then and then have to be taking it back. You know, uh, we didn't want to have have to have that transaction happen multiple times. So initially, we just offered consignment to figure out the price point, but once we figured out the price point and we had a program that would work, then we went strictly wholesale. Um, so, you know, we only did that for maybe 15 or 20 salons where we put a salons and boutiques 
to to go back and talk to those owners and saying, okay, how's it selling through? Have you seen it? People react for it at, at six dollars or five dollars or three ninety nine? Like, where is that magic price point? Now, how how are you testing this? Were you just uh, in these fifteen or so salons? Were you just offering different price points at each one and seeing which ones sold better? Yeah, we uh, we would play with it, especially based on how how high end the salon was. So, uh, for example, we have one very high end salon that sold the products for eleven ninety nine each and sold out on a regular basis. Uh, but they have a very high end clientele. They're you know spending thousands of dollars, and so putting a twelve dollar item, twelve dollar lip balm is no problem for them. Uh, but then in a boutique, you know, a smaller boutique we're four ninety nine all day long and couldn't get much more out of that than, than that. So we kind of had to test that. And then we ended up coming like somewhere right in the middle. You know, we figured like a five ninety nine online price point is perfect. And then uh, $4.99 in like the boutique setting is perfect. And then at big retail, through Target, through, uh, you know, some of these Kroger, these big retailers, like three ninety nine was the price point that mm-hmm. really moved off the shelf. Nice. So one thing you mentioned to me during the pre-interview questions was that you uh, focus a lot on demographic targeting and driving customers to stores through through digital. Does that does that mean uh, digital running online ads to drive people to a physical store? Yeah, because that that's mainly my background is is and my experience has been up to this point. Um, has been with uh, with big retail. So we've we've launched. This was our first launch with this product, and then we've launched several several other projects through big retail. You know, the Targets and the WalMarts and and uh, all that type of distribution, which is a challenge because you have to drive people to the shelf and you have to help that that retailer move products off the shelf. And so. One of the big tactics that we use and, and where we spend most of our marketing budget is on specific demographic info of who is in that community, where is a Walmart store or a Target store, and based on demographic info, this person is more likely or less likely to go to a Target or a Walmart, and we're going to show them ads that drive them in-store. Mm-hmm. And we can actually track it. We've got it to where um, – we can actually track when they open it, when they see it, and if they have certain things, uh, you know, available on their phone, you can actually see them uh, basically walk through the doors of uh, of a Walmart. You can't see them make the transaction, but you can you can compare it against um, your sales numbers to see if it's really working for you. That, that's awesome. So, was there like some kind of co-marketing budget that you worked out with these retailers, or was it all funded through through your company? No, it's it's all funded through yeah, it's all funded through us. We use it as a trade spend. So we uh, we hold a portion of all of the basically put it in as as part of cost of goods uh, that you know you're going to have to use a certain budget of marketing to really push it at these retailers. Hmm, okay, and you mentioned that you you it sounds like you have very hyper local demographic information because you, it needs to be tied to specific uh, retail stores. How did you find this information? Like, what, what kind of sources were you looking at to to gather this? You know, we actually use uh, we go through a couple of agencies. We go through a couple of agencies that, <clears throat> depending on which product, they're very product specific agencies. And so, for most of our products. Um, they're targeted to women demographics because that's where we started. That's what we learned the most about. And then every one of our products since um, and projects since have been kind of focused on women. And so we we partnered with an agency who specializes in marketing to women. And so they've done a lot of stuff for you know massive companies and they have these demographics just dialed in. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna ask next, like, how did you scale something like this up? Because there's so many different locations that you have to yeah. identify and, and all that. Mark, that's all done through the agency. It's all done through the agency. It's all done through zip code based on where our stores are. So I give them a list of, for example, if I launch in um, 250 Walmart stores, I give them the list of these 250 stores, and I target my my um, digital only around the zip codes where those stores are. So I know that people that are seeing these ads could potentially shop and most likely shop at this Walmart um, based on their their demographic info. So I'm not wasting any money at all spending digitally in somewhere where the person can't go in and buy our product. Mm. Is there a name for these kind of agencies that they're not, it doesn't sound like they're typical marketing agencies because like you're saying they're specific for your industry and are they specialized in driving online traffic to offline stores? Yes. Yeah. They're, they're pretty specialized in doing exactly that. I mean, they have, they, they do some for e-commerce, but specifically, this is a big problem for a lot of companies that are trying to launch and go retail. It's a very big, the, the, we joke about it and say, you know, it's so hard to get your product in front of a buyer and actually get a sale, but that's the easiest part. (laughs) You know, once, once you get the sale, pushing it through at retail is really the challenge and making sure that it moves off the shelf and that you can stay on the shelf for a long period of time. Mm, yeah, I was going to say, because a lot of times people have this uh, finish line that they're trying to get to, which is to get into the retail store and then hope that just the, the, the traffic that that store generates is going to be enough. But you're taking a step beyond that and actually funding the marketing to drive people to, to, these, to these stores. Um, now, did you have to, you mentioned as well in the pre-interview questions about the focus is now sw- switching a little bit over to driving traffic to, to the online store. What has yeah. that process been like? What has that transition been like for you? So, you know, it's been interesting because I've been retail, retail, retail for the past little mm-hmm. while. And I've, I've done some consulting uh, the last couple of years for some large companies. I, I was brought in and, and looked at their, I looked at everything that they're doing in retail. And, and some of these companies are doing, you know, 200 million plus at retail, at the biggest retailers in the nation. And uh, something every one of them was missing was a really good online presence. They were leaving so much money on the table that none of them had Amazon stores. None of them had um, any type of uh, retail presence on the internet. And I just thought, man, you're, you're really missing the boat. So one of the things I implemented at a few of these places was to immediately get Amazon going. And uh, I mean, sure enough, as soon as uh, an Amazon presence was up and, and people knew about it, they start, their, their retail st- sales stayed the same and they started selling like crazy on Amazon. And so... You know what? What I saw there was was some white space to create, um, to create another company, which is uh, we created an agency to help people sell on Amazon, and ended up learning a whole lot about Amazon, and uh, which is I launched several brands on Amazon of my own brands, and now the focus is learning the e-commerce side. Um, so now I kind of had retail, then I learned Amazon, and now. Uh, just fairly recently, the last couple of months is we are, my team has really looked at this and said, okay, we need to become professionals at, uh, driving traffic driving people to our website and selling off our website. So we put a couple of test businesses up, um, got some product in just a, a few months ago and we're starting to push traffic just these coming weeks. And we've, we've learned so much so far and, and we have a goal to do, uh, to do a million dollars via the website. Um, this year. And so we're really pushing to, to get that done. We're mm. excited. It's been a really crazy learning process. Um, and 
just soaking in every bit of information I can right now on on getting traffic over there. Yeah, so far, based on what you guys have been doing, what, what what's different about driving traffic to an offline store versus an online store? Does your how does your marketing change? You know, I love that I can track it all the way through. Like <laughs> that's the most mm-hmm. amazing piece. Is you know, it's uh, it's fantastic to watch people react to your ads and then go to your site and make the purchase, and you can see everything right there in front of you. There's a lot of guesswork in driving them to an offline store where you're hoping a lot of things happen, and then you have to you have to compare it against your in-store sales, and you have to do a lot of kind of just inferring that, yeah, maybe we think that this worked and we we're pretty sure that this had an, a, had a, um, a good positive effect. But with, with the online store, we know within a second, if we're doing AB testing, we immediately can say, yes, this worked, kill this campaign. Let's go full blast on this one. And we see the sales roll in. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing to watch. And because there's so much more data available online and you're learning about all of this, has it impacted your approach to, to what you're doing before with driving, or I guess what you're still doing with driving traffic to, to the retail store? Yeah, you know what? It's a, it's, a, it's a way bigger focus. I mean, the margins are, are much better um, online because you control everything and you're spending your ad spend, but that's all you, that's all you have. You know, you're not selling wholesale. You're not worrying about the marketing. You're not... Uh, shipping to 12 different distribution centers across the U.S. I mean, there's so much less uh, work that happens um, on the online side for a much higher profit. So it just makes a ton more sense. So that's when we noticed that and recognized that, you know, we really put a lot of focus on this year we're launching, you know, we have four different companies in the, and, and all four of those are going to have a heavy, heavy online presence. Awesome. So you mentioned uh, it was just I just throughout this interview about launching all these different products, and especially since you have experience launching a product and getting into a retail space, uh, what have you? I guess what what do you what do you see entrepreneurs tripping up during this process of having an idea, having a concept for a product, and carrying all the way through to getting it onto a shelf? You know, the most most of the people that I talk to just get stuck. Um, they have a great idea. Um, and that's it. They don't know where to go from there. You know, they don't know whether they should patent. They don't know whether they should, um, you know, what type of protections they need. They're, they're nervous to get it out there in the world, you know. Um, and then they don't know uh, how to actually fabricate the product and, and prototype it. And so there's, there's all those little pieces that, that uh, you know, now I, I kind of take for granted just that I know because I've been through it, but uh, that's the biggest thing is, is they just don't know where to go and what to do next. And, and that's where I think really grabbing a mentor and having somebody who's been through it to just say, okay, this isn't a big deal. Now we're going on a prototyping phase. Here's, here's three different prototype companies that can crank out your design and give you a CAD file and, and show you an actual prototype within about a month. Uh, you know, and and that kind of information and having those point you people point you in the right direction is just invaluable. Saves you a ton of time and a ton of headache. Awesome. And what would you say you should be doing, spending your time in during the first few months of having a concept? Is it just searching for a mentor, or are there other things that you can be doing uh, better with your time? Yeah, I think I think 
when you're concepting it out, I really love uh, going to Pinterest. Honestly, Pinterest is one of my favorite places to go and create a board of what I want the product to look and feel like. I create a whole um, collage of this is the look and feel. This is my brand. This is where it's going to live. And then I can take that board and I can go show it to uh, whether it's an ad agency, whether it's somebody who's building your, you know, just a, a, a somebody who's moonlighting and helping you build a logo and a website. Um, you're really going to be able to communicate a whole lot better if you have a bunch of images down of what you like and what you want your concept and your product to be and, and feel like. And I feel like that's that's been super important to convey the message because there's people come to me all the time and there's like, ah, oh, that my graphic designer is just not getting it. They just don't get what I what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And it's because that communication isn't getting all the way through to them. You know, what's in your brain isn't getting across. And so I feel like with those images you can really convey that. It saves you a ton of time and a ton of money. Yeah, I think that that's a point that a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck up at is that, especially if they don't have a design focus or design mind is what you're saying, where it's hard for them to communicate. And you you don't have to always try to come up with the design from scratch, from, from within your own mind. And if you just create this kind of board like you're talking about where you not only list the things that you do like, but then also what you don't like, what you want to yes. stay away from, I think makes it way easier to communicate. And I've seen this myself too, working with designers that way. It's easier on your side and also easier for them too because that's how they, they, they think as well. Um, now, I want to talk about your Shark Tank experience. Like I was saying earlier on, that was, that was when I first heard about your product. Um, so kind of give a little bit of background here. You went into the show uh, seeking uh, $200,000 for a 20% uh, equity deal, uh, and you ended up getting a deal, right? Can you can you share the details of it with us? Yeah, what a trip. Uh, that, that was amazing, uh, just an incredible experience. I mean, first of all, you only see about eight minutes of what happens mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, we were in there for like an hour and a half. I mean, it was like real deal back and forth, uh, negotiating. They knew everything about us and, uh, and it's real money. I mean, what you see is what you get on that show. It's, it's a real, it's the real deal. So we went in there asking for uh, 200 grand brand new little company and still in college, uh, did not know what we were doing at all. So Mark Cuban was awesome. He took a chance on us and, uh, <laughs> and he, he's been awesome. Just a really cool mentor, um, through the ups and downs of learning this business and trying to get, you know, selling lip balm is hard. Selling a lot of lip balm, thousands and thousands of units is, di- is, is difficult. So it has been a fantastic experience to work with him. And now he has a team when we, uh, when we initially were invested in, we were on season three, so he didn't have a, a large team at that point, but now he's got, uh, an entire team that is dedicated to helping his shark tank companies, which is really cool. Uh, so overall, man, just a, just a fantastic experience. It really put us on the map and did what we wanted it to, as far as the marketing side and really helped launch this this first little company and how did you get on the show like you're saying you're a brand new company and um and you got on arguably one of the the best avenues for launching a new product how did you how did you get on the show you know it was really out of pure necessity i mean we were uh, my my buddy and i you know who he came on about a year after i had you know, been concepting this out in my mind and got some initial samples and had some initial packaging he came on and and we were just trying to scrap enough to get by. I mean, we got jobs at night at, at a local grocery store stocking shelves, and then we'd work our business during the day. And just like, 
the the absolute grind and then we we had the idea we were going to go out and we were going to uh, do summer sales basically door to door sales selling security systems because we knew some of our friends made a lot of money doing that just to try to keep our company going um so we're out there sitting on a curb in in Austin Texas and it's like 112 degrees and we're just dying doing door to door sales and uh we're looking at each other and we're like we got to we've got to get Kistix on the map how can we do that and we're brainstorming, just sitting out there in the heat, and uh, we're like reality TV. We both have no money at this point. Reality TV is free. You, if you can get onto a show, it's millions and millions of people that see your product. And we're, we're like, we have got to get on Shark Tank. We had seen the show. We liked the show. We were fans. And uh, we literally right then pulled out our phones and, and Googled how to get on Shark Tank. And it just so happens that that weekend in Dallas, Texas, were open casting calls. And we were out in Austin, Texas. So we took that Saturday off and we drove out to, to Dallas and stood in line for eight hours uh, to get a 30-second pitch with a casting director. And it just, that's, exactly, I mean, that's just how things fell into place. And, and it just very, very uh, huge opportunity that, it, that happened to be uh, casting calls that weekend. Yeah, that that that's amazing that you're you're able to you know there's a little bit of luck, but then you're also prepared, of course, to look for this opportunity. Uh, what made you think? What do you think made your company attractive to to the to the I guess the producers of Shark Tank? I think a couple of things. I think uh, at the end of the day, Shark Tank is a TV show. You know, it has to be entertaining. Um, and so our product is definitely entertaining, right? I mean, it's a it's a goofy product. Um, it's a silly concept. But we had sales. I mean, we, we'd been in business for only like four or five months at that point, And we had about $80,000 in sales from pure, pure hustle. Um, and for lip balm, that's a lot of, that's a lot of lip balm. And so, you know, when we're talking to the casting director and we're like, here's our concept, this is so in her mind, she's going, this could be hilarious on TV. It's actually a real somewhat real company with, uh, you know, a small amount of sales right now. And, uh, these kids are in college, you know, these are young entrepreneurs who know nothing and nobody can tell these guys, no, <laughs> you know, and then I think that naivety, um, helped us, you know, nobody could tell us that this was a crappy idea or this is just a goofy marketing ploy, um, or whatever. We didn't care. And I think that was attractive to, uh, to the producers. Nice. And now that you've worked with Mark Cuban, can you share some of the, or share one of the most useful general business tips that he's given you? He always is saying outwork your competition. You know, he, he looks at business like a sport. And if you've never read his book, it's, it's pretty fascinating. It's basically a bunch of his blog posts combined into a book, but it's, uh, I think it's like $3 on Amazon or something, but it's how to win at the sport of business. And I love it. it. It talks about his story and you know the the hustle that that he did to to make it to where he is today. And he always says, you know, work like somebody's trying to take it away from you twenty four hours a day. You know, and that and that is, holds true for everything he does. I mean, he'll email me at three o'clock in the morning. You know, two o'clock in the morning. Like he's he's always on the grind. And I think that's I, I really look up to him for that. It, that that's, it sounds like it could lead to a maybe a stressful life. You know, I, I think that's that's the common uh, common place for any entrepreneur. How do you balance that though? How do you have or do you try to look for balance when you are trying to always uh, work that way, outwork your competition? You know, it's interesting because I would I would say, and I think uh, 
my wife would tell you that that there isn't a lot of balance. You know, I, I think I think the balance kind of gets thrown out the window when you're going for going for the gold. Um, I, I like to kind of liken it unto Olympic athletes, right? If you talk to those guys about life balance, you know, there is none. They're, they work 24 seven to towards a goal. Um, once you achieve some of those goals, then you then I think you can back off the gas pedal a little bit. But I also think as an entrepreneur, when you when you're a true entrepreneur and you love this lifestyle, this becomes exciting for you. You know, this becomes, you know, what is the next gig? What is the next deal? Um, how can I, how can I just make this company mad successful? Um, and you kind of settle into where you find your balance among, among the total chaos (laughs) and that, and that's truly what it is, but it becomes, it becomes fun. It becomes exciting. And, um, you know, in, in my family, I have, I have two little girls and, and a wife and, um, they've, they've come along for the ride and they are awesome about supporting me in that and being able to, uh, to handle the madness a lot and the, and the late nights and the, and we work it out to where schedules. So I'm present. I'm not just gone all the time. I, you know, I'm, when I'm here, I'm here, but, uh, but an opportunity pops up and, everybody knows that that's, uh, that's what I've got to do to, to keep these businesses going. So balance is a funny one. It's, it's just crazy. It's madness all the time, but it's, it's awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Dale. So kissticks.com, K-I-S-S-T-I-X-X.com is the website. You also have a couple other sites. Can you share, share the, the URLs for them and give us a little background on each? Our, our test site that I mentioned that we're launching, that we launched on Amazon initially, and now we're launching um, through, uh, through the internet and through Shopify is, uh, is From the Avenue, baby products. Um, so fromtheavenue.com, a um, bunch of baby products for, for moms and, and toddlers and kids and fun little project there. Uh, and then my Amazon agency is, is Elemers. E-L-E-M-E-R-C-E.com. And then uh, I, I just launched a, a little mentoring site. I've been doing a lot of public speaking lately and mentoring, and, uh, and that's really a passion of mine that I'm, that I'm growing this year, and that's just uh, DallasRobinsonMentoring.com. Awesome. Thanks again so much for your time, Dallas. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. They wanted us on there for entertainment value. And we weren't looking for investors that sounded antithetical to what we were trying to do, but the marketing aspect of it was amazing. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.